This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. Do you long to understand the Bible in a deeper way? The ESV Study Bible was created by a diverse team of leading Bible scholars and teachers and features a wide array of study tools, including extensive study notes, topical theology articles, Bible character profiles, and more, making it a valuable resource for serious readers, students, and teachers of God's Word. Pick up a copy of the ESV Study Bible wherever Bibles are sold or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a message from Michael S. Keller, originally delivered at TGC Netherlands 2023. I planted a church out of Redeemer. It's Redeemer Lincoln Square. We did that in 2017. Before that, I was working in college ministry. And between college ministry and planting that church, I actually got my PhD at the Free University of Amsterdam. So I've been here um, and have enjoyed um, my Dutch friends. And um, it's, it's a joy to, to come here. When, I, when Case first said, uh, hey, do you want to do this conference? I, I said, sure, but I don't want to talk about my father. That'd be kind of strange and weird. Um, you know, I like to talk about the influences and Redeemer and, and, and whatnot. And um, interestingly, after he died, I, I was like, actually, um, nothing would give me more joy to be able to talk about him and um, what he uh, saw and how we can use some of the things that he found out. And so um, I, I believe it's strategic for us to analyze and to ask the questions that he asked. And we can look at Tim Keller and Redeemer over the past 30 years and say, what can we learn from them? What can we see that they saw? And um, for clarity, I, I'm not going to call dad, dad. I'm going to call him Tim Keller for everybody here. Um, just to make it easy. Um, luckily for us, um, before Tim Keller passed away, I asked him, I said, hey, I'm doing this conference. What, what do you want me to talk about? What do you think? And uh, I said, what are your thoughts on how you presented the gospel between 19, you know, the 1980s and the 2020s? And what are the effects of the Puritans and Jonathan Edwards and John Owens on your uh, formative years? You know, light, father, son, talk. And I, actually, a lot of this happened while he was in the hospital doing medical procedures. And he just started talking. He was, he was talking about, he knew this was happening in um, the Netherlands. And he started talking about how that he didn't have the English translations of Kuiper or Bavink, particularly about their piety. So he had to actually find uh, works on piety in English translations or English um, individuals like Jonathan Edwards and John Owens. 
uh, he, he was pontificating, wondering if maybe the reason why there was not the writings of Kuiper and Bavinck uh, that were from those pi- their pietistic readings, if it was because that the translators back in the 20th century, uh, you know, when the, the rise of liberalism in America, was it possible that they didn't feel like those were as needed as what was translated? So he had to look to English authors for all his uh, works on inward piety. And um, particularly Edward's sermons and John Owen's content, they asked people to not just have head knowledge, but heart knowledge. They distinguished between the religious practice of, of uh, you know, intellectual belief between that and experiential heart change by the relationship to Jesus. This from, this, uh, in his mind, he's, this, then from his neo-Calvinism interlockers, he found a reformed faith that answered how Christians were to live out the, the life. Um, I actually believe the thing that was really interesting that I think Tim Keller did was is he fused this, I guess, English uh, reformed view of inward piety and individual experiential faith with actually a continental Dutch uh, tradition, theology about how to live that life out in the world. And most, nobody's actually ever done that before to bring those two things together. Um, he was affected by Kuiper and Van Til and, and later Bavink. And I think pulling these two layers together and using them as the, as the compilation of what the gospel is and how to meet the rising secular world in America in the 1980s to 2020 was the powerful uh, thing that we see and, and have experienced ourselves. So I know that uh, James is going to talk about the, his influences uh, from uh, the continent, but therefore I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at his uh, formation through his pietistic sensibilities. And um, I'm going to first do a brief historical overview about how did we get here? How did we get to uh, where he was at in the context that Tim Keller ministered? Then we're going to look at the values, the main pietistic values that he used to present the gospel clearly in his historical moment. And then lastly, I'll make a couple of observations about uh, what this means for us going forward, some kind of, some applications for us. So first, the historical context. Nobody, not, none of us in this room ministers in a, a historical vacuum. Everybody has to think critically and strategically about our own context. And therefore, we need to know what was the context that Tim Keller ministered in and, and how did that lead to how he presented the gospel? I think it's noteworthy that he was very aware of his historical moment. Um, and I'm gonna give you a summary that he gave me <laughs> highlighting what he thought were the key historical moments that led up to his context in New York in um, the latter half of the 20th century. And he used Mark Knoll's work on American evangelicalism. And this is what, what how, these are the th- key things that dad pointed to. He said, go back to the 1740s, you have the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, and what you have there in the Enlightenment is a movement where the new Lockean th- psychology about how individuals thought of themselves, the Great Awakening met individuals that... Uh, we're having these experiences. And between George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, there was this renewed focus on personal belief, 
church renewal and an emphasis on the experiential uh, in the life of the individual. This led to a renewed American piety. It led to revival. But it also was one more step towards focusing on the individual. There was a loss of the corporate and the communal, and it was more on the individual. Then, a hundred years from then, uh, the Civil War in America, you had Christians on both sides of the war arguing, using the Bible for slavery and against slavery. What that did is that since the war ended not by thought but by military might, because of that, uh, what, what ended up happening is public reliance on the Bible's authority lessened because both groups were arguing for their view using the Bible. So people in public said, you know what? We can't trust this as a way to gauge uh, and mitigate cultural conflict. Also, after slavery was outlawed legally, lynchings and segregation continued in America and it was often enforced or at least it was uh, um, ignored by the majority culture, which were Christians. What that did was it saw a um, continued decrease of the application of faith in the public square, inside the moral conscience, and there became less and less of a need of having a, a public faith. The emphasis then on science moved to the 1900s. The emphasis on science, the de-emphasization of um, miracles, pointing out to uh, questions about the virgin birth and miracles and the authority of scripture were regularly voiced in the public. And so Christian voices were not that engaged. They actually pulled out of the public square and created their own institutions and denominations. Again, this led to a furthering um, privatization of faith and a decrease of Christians in the public square using their Christian thought. Tim Keller was born in 1950 as American public Christianity was on the decrease. It was on its way down. And in that space, what the moral authority of the Bible and of faith was being regulated to just private uh, faith. So his public ministry began in the 1970s in a very religious part of America in the South. But by the late eight, 1980s, he was in the most hostile um, part of America, New York City, that was against Christianity. And the individualism that started with Edwards, well, I guess it was John Locke and Descartes, what started in the Enlightenment had continued to progress into extreme individualism that was now present in the 1980s in New York City. And when Tim Keller arrived in New York, who did he meet? He met uh, professionals who were the most unreached people group in the city. And these professionals were uh, highly sexualized. They were upwardly mobile. They tended to only think about self in individualistic terms. They hated commitment. They were very private. In fact, I remember when Redeemer first um, got started, they tried to do a uh, photo album where they put um, everybody in the directory to exp who's part of the church. Nobody signed up. Nobody wanted to have their picture taken because they didn't want to be associated with the church or for them to be found out that they were actually part of that place. They were very lonely. 
They were busy and overall distrustful of organized religion, particularly Christianity because of the historical uh, space that Christianity had in America. And yet these individuals were uh, in New York City and they were not finding answers to the big questions of life. Who am I? What's the point of everything? Who should I be with? What should I do? And so these individuals are asking these questions at a time when Christianity had been privatized and the, and in New York city was considered uh, passe, something not to, um, to be, to, 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 to use anymore. At the same time, he also met Christians in the city who were struggling how to relate their faith to their career. They were struggling with the ethical pressures of the city and they didn't know what postures they should take to culture. Should they be against culture? Should they be for it? Should they be somewhere in between? And we get to ask now, with that historical and cultural context that Tim Keller was in, how did he meet people with the gospel? What did he do there? And particularly in regards to piety, I want to focus on two innovations that he got from Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans that Tim Keller used to meet his context. As an aside, um, I actually became a Christian later in life. I tell parents this a lot, actually, that um, I probably, I joke about this. I had the best um, articulation of the gospel growing up, and that wasn't enough. That didn't, that, that didn't save me. And the reason why is just because you hear the gospel doesn't, that's not actually what saves you, right? It's still a movement of the Holy Spirit in your life. So I became a Christian actually in college. And when I became a Christian, I asked my father, I said, hey, what's the most important book that you read that uh, changed your life? You know, I want to read it too. I want to I I start growing in this area. And he said, it wasn't actually a book. It was a class he took at Gordon-Conwell by Dr. Richard Lovelace, which now you can get in book form. It's called um, Dynamics of, of a, a Spiritual Life. And in it, Lovelace, this professor, details how Jonathan Edwards' revivalist uh, intuition is effective for, for, for uh, revival. And the first innovation out of that class that I think my father got was from Jonathan Edwards, which was an emphasis that every individual needs to rediscover justification by faith that leads to obedience, that leads to repentance, that leads to prayer. That is, justification has to be the means to sanctification. And the biggest problem that people have is they rely on their sanctification for their justification, that we reverse it. And so during Edwards' time, what was happening? The great awakening was happening and all these people were getting these very emotional experiences saying, I can prove that I'm a believer. I can prove that I am uh, a Christian because look at all these things that, I, that are happening to me. But then Edwards saw that there was no fruit in their life. He didn't see the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And, and so what Edwards came up with was he said, without nullifying the idea that you can have an experience of God, which by the way, people in that time, Charles Chauncey uh, said that revivals were just emotionalism. So Edwards 
rejected that idea. And at the same time, he said that proof of faith can't be rooted in any kind of potential outward manifestations. It can't be just what you see, your deeds, your actions, your feelings. And that was actually against most of the revivalists who came after Jonathan Edwards in the, the revivals afterwards. Instead, Edwards said, one can only rest on and be assured of one's eternal acceptance based on the finished work of Christ. Similarly, Tim Keller shows up at his new church in the 1980s and what did he see? He saw Christians and non-Christians believing that if you obeyed, then you will be accepted. That the, the, the way most people thought of faith is, well, you know you're a Christian if you do Christian things. And both Christians and non-Christians thought that's what it meant to be a Christian. That if you had the outward signs of obedience, that would be the way of knowing that you were saved. But he pointed out by looking at Jonathan Edwards is, that's actually not what justification is. Loveless points out that most people believe they're justified because of their sanctification, rather that their sanctification is supposed to come out of a life centered on their justification. Justification is what Jesus did in time, once in a moment, and belief on that, where sanctification is the growth and the process by which you become more like Christ in life that the way to bring spiritual renewal dynamic into practice and the way to wake up sleepy nominal Christians and the way to convert non-Christians and secular non-believers was to translate what, what Tim Keller did was he translated it into the New York vernacular that you are not accepted because you obey, that you obey because you're accepted. And that phrase that actually became very big in Redeemer is really just a manifestation of Jonathan Edwards' pietistic sensibilities. This simple idiom summarized Lovelace's insights of Edwards' emphasis that all obedience must come from a grateful heart of acceptance or it's not real obedience. And so why is that different? Um, it's different because modernist Christians at the time, uh, they divided discipleship to Christians and evangelism to non-Christians into separate spaces. In fact, I think a lot of churches still do that. But the insight and what was radical in the 1980s is to say that the core problem of the non-Christian is the core problem of a Christian, which is unbelief. That the reason why non-Christians are non-Christians is because they don't believe. But the reason why Christians don't act like Christians is because essentially... They don't believe either. Not, not really. Both didn't trust that they were justified and loved by the creator God of the universe. All unbelief then, all lack of sanctification comes from this. And I think it was in the 1980s and 90s and in Redeemer, it was powerfully convicting to Christians to realize, A, that they may never have had saving faith originally if they were just looking to their sanctification for their justification B, if they did look to their sanctification only, then they're going to find inconsistencies and they're going to doubt their faith. And therefore, C, they, had to re they realized that Christianity was not try hard and be good and then God will love you, but that God loves you. It's written into the story of the Bible. And as he pursues his wayward people, as you realize that's you, 
that changes your life. That's not just for Christians though. Non-Christians realized that whatever Christianity was, it wasn't just a new moral uh, praxis. It wasn't just a new moral way to have to be good and try hard and then you'll be accepted. Because of this, non-Christians realized that actually what was, they were being told was that spiritual renewal um, from Edwards was, was a stress on grace alone, by faith alone. It's very, it's very simple. And yet what was so profound was in the 1980s, at least in New York City, that wasn't being stressed. And so what ended up happening was is that this barrier to belief for both Christians and non-Christians was taken away. And, and uh, Tim Keller used this phrase, right? You're not, it's, you, it's not you obey and then you're accepted. You're accepted and then you're obeyed. That's justification, but he didn't even use the word justification because even that word can often be a, a tribal Christian subculture word, which we can use in, in a conference. But to his people, I don't think most people knew what that word justification meant, even though it was a theologically correct term. Instead, Tim Keller created a summary phrase of the gospel, right? The, his famous phrase that I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe, but I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. He took that phrase and he used that as the basis by saying, this is what we mean by the gospel. It was a riff off of Jack Miller, but it was a new uh, way to put it together. And here's what was different. Old mainline churches, like the old Presbyterians, the old mainline uh, in America, they saw the same historical change where uh, faith was privatized and uh, miracles were doubted and um, Christians were not really believing in the inerrancy of scripture. And so what the mainline liberal churches did was they continued the de-supernaturally, de-supernaturalizing the Christian faith. They only ever talked about grace and love. They didn't want to talk about the bad news. They didn't want to talk about that you're more flawed than you ever dared believe. At the same time in America, conservative fundamentalists, uh, they were very happy to talk about God as judge and God as as, um, uh, the individual who's going to judge you. The man is sinful and um, in need but they didn't actually ever want to talk about to the same degree, the love and the hope and the goodness and the grace that was offered for you. And so what ended up happening is Tim Keller was able to hold both together with this pietistic emphasis of justification through Edwards to create this spiritual renewal. And it happened because the bad news, you're more sinful and flawed. And yet the good news of grace becomes sweeter and, and more needed than ever before because of that bad news. It was within God's unconditional love and grace that created a safe space for um, uh, unconditional love. It was within God's unconditional love that created a safe space to see one's need in the first place. And that is what led to transformation. All right, that's number one. Now, the second pietistic innovation that affected Tim Keller the most was Edward's stress on the intellectual understanding of doctrine was not enough. It was Jonathan Edwards who said the, the notional 
knowledge of truth is not the same thing as the experiential knowledge of that truth in your life. As Christianity became less public and those who grew up in Christian households de-identified with the the faith, um, the question Tim Keller was asking is, how is it going to be possible for um, concepts of Christianity that are floating around, how is it possible to, to know those concepts but not really be a Christian? Another question people were asking is, like, if you grow up in a Christian household, how is it possible that you learn all the concepts, you know the intellectual gospel, you hear it said at home as I did, but then walk away from the faith? How is that possible? And this answered that possibility that um, the um, problem was it was only a notional idea. The number one question Tim Keller got and I get now as a pastor in New York City is this. I believe in God, but I don't feel his presence. Most Christians say that to, at, at some form in their life. I believe in God, but I don't feel his presence. This addresses that, that Edward's concept of how one can get a notional understanding of faith without a personal experience of the gospel solves both those questions. Uh, the affectional must be combined with the notional. Jonathan Edwards had a very famous sermon called A Divine and Spiritual Light. And this is what he says in there. He says, there is a twofold knowledge of good of which God has made the mind of man capable. The first, which is merely the notional, and the other, which consists of a sense of the heart, as when the heart is sensible of pleasure and delight in the presence of the idea of it. Thus, There is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and the beauty and the holiness and grace of it. And then uh, that's the end of the quote. There there is a a difference, therefore, between uh, having a rational judgment. This is the famous Jonathan Edwards image. There's a difference between having a rational judgment of that honey is sweet. You know the consistency, you know the concept of it. But there's something very different than actually having a sense of that sweetness. In other words, for Jonathan Edwards, a mere emotional experience is not a sign of faith. That's what he saw, people falling on the ground. He said, that's not faith because that's not rooted in a real spiritual reality. At the same time, merely having an intellectual idea, the spiritual concept of it, does not mean that you've really understood it because there's no experience of, uh, there's no product of the experience in your life. It doesn't uh, mean one really is a Christian. One way I, I try to explain this to uh, my church is, hey, demons intellectually believe in God, but they clearly haven't had an experience of God's love and grace in their life, or they wouldn't be demons. And so in the same way, dead orthodoxy in a church is when you can believe in your head but not experience that same truth in your heart. It's also why you can be raised as a Christian and then walk away from the faith. That the grace that you learned is not actually grace tasted. And a grace, if you haven't tasted it, isn't really grace because if you had tasted it, you never would have left. It's too good of a taste that you would never walk away from. How did this affect Tim Keller's preaching? Profoundly. The sermon was never meant to be a place where you just imparted information, nor was it a place where you just got an emotional response from people. 
Uh, instead, the purpose of the sermon was designed not just to make the truth plain. The goal of the sermon was to make the truth real, not just understandable, but experiential. Edwards believed that the spiritual realities were not the same of our earthly experiences, but through the imagination, one could access those spiritual realities through the images and illustrations that are given. Edwards would not have grasped the phrase, this happens in America, just preach the scriptures. You hear that phrase in America. He wouldn't have understood that because he saw the role of the preacher not just making the, the truth evident, but to make the truth real. Tim Keller said this once. I, I, I uh, found this in one of his files. He said, Edwards would say that if a truth about Jesus doesn't thrill, move, melt, electrify, and change you, you haven't really understood it. He also said this in a personal note about Edwards, um, about his influence on him. He said this, Edwards showed me how inadequate much of 20th century expository preaching really is. It was highly cognitive and highly abstract, but the solution was not to simply go after sentimental stories that moved with feelings. The solution wasn't get a a smoke machine and and loud music and lots of, uh, you know, powerful imagery. He said, the solution was to learn to embody the truth in concrete ways. Uh, um, During my seminary years, I learned about Christocentric preaching from Ed Clowney and about Edwards revivalism from Richard Lovelace. But none of this really affected my preaching as long as I looked, as I was locked into an evangelical subculture. There was, there I was rewarded for traditional exposition that often lacked all these things. I would have certainly professed that I was doing Christocentric preaching. See, he he said, hey, I was preaching Christ, but really I was just lifting up Jesus as just an example and urging people to live like him. It took an intense experience of preaching in New York City to wake me up. As I began to confront the changes that I had to make, I began to realize that I had all the theological and historical resources necessary. What's that about? Um, That little personal note shows us that Tim Keller's pietistic learning process was not just, you know, learn these theological truths and apply them. He actually said he learned them in seminary before. But then when he just started preaching, he still preached Christ as just an example and then lived like him. He said that his ability to apply the theological truths from one age, from Jonathan Edwards, to his people in New York City in in the 1980s and 90s and 2000s is that he had to first respond to the needs and historical situation that he found himself in. Notice he said he had the resources from seminary And he had the content, but it wasn't until the context demanded this gospel formation did he really change. And so this, to me, to be honest, this lesson for us is we should pause and ask ourselves, what resources are available to us right now? Maybe you already have them, but we need to be using them differently to meet the context, to meet the needs of the people that are in front of us. That's what Tim Keller did. 
that if, if we did, it might, it might look like what happened to Tim Keller, that the concepts and the categories that he had and the content he had were fine, but he needed an experience of, of the need of the new contextual space of the New York City in the 1980s or whatever, Almire in 2023, to be changed about how to present the gospel in profound ways to his people. So to conclude, I'd like to end with a couple observations and a couple applications. Number one, analyzing Tim Keller's pietistic values shows us that the good news of the gospel doesn't need to be reinvented. It's, it's the good news. I remember when I became a, a young minister, I moaned to my dad. I said, I have nothing new to offer. And I think he put on the father hat and he said, there is not an original bone in my body. I, re- I really remembered that because it was helpful as a, as a young man in, in ministry to hear that. But what he was essentially saying is, there's nothing new here. At the end of the day, the gospel is still the gospel. And it's important to note that we do not have to reinvent the wheel. If the good news of the gospel is really true, objectively, then it doesn't need to be changed. And we should take lots of solace in that. Now, secondly, at the same time, what Tim Keller's ability, one of his abilities was analyzing the culture and the needs of it and then synthesizing materially a very profoundly how to speak into that culture. And so even though we don't need to come up with a new content, we do need to push ourselves to ask ourselves, is this making sense to our people? You know, how do we, we have to push ourselves and say, are we really making the gospel real to our people? For Tim Keller, uh, 19th and 20th century modernistic Protestant presentations of the gospel, when he, where, what he grew up in, the people around him who believed in Christianity, they had, a, they, they had a population that believed in this concept of sin. This is why early modern presentations of the gospel could speak about God is holy and man is sinful and, and the cross was a way to bridge the divide. But then... Tim Keller, post-1980, shows up into New York City and he runs into people who, who, who say this. They say, sin? What's that? Evil? Me? No. Uh, you know, God is over on the other side of the divide? What is that supposed to mean? Seeing this change meant that Tim Keller did not reinvent the gospel, but he also didn't present it in the way that he was taught. He did not present it the way everybody else was thinking about it. Instead, he used Augustinian formation of the problem of the human heart is not that, you know, it's, it's a loving the wrong things. Instead, the problem of the heart is that it's, we've misordered our loves and we need to reorder them because they're out of balance. For New Yorkers who didn't see themselves as sinful, this Old Testament language of idolatry uh, and that said that you've made some things more important than other things, they understood that. Right? They didn't understand the concept of sin, but they could understand of making some things too important that would put your life out of balance and it's killing you. And so the gospel is good news only if you're, you need to be saved from something. And he spent the time showing his people what they needed to be saved from. 
Notice he didn't blame. A lot of times I see this in, in, in sub, Christian subculture. People blame the individuals. They say, oh, well, they just, you know, they just reject Christianity. And there is rejection. But he spent his time translating the gospel into forms that, that his people could understand. The narrative of culture changed. To, uh, and what he did was he changed to respond to the needs of the people in that given age. And therefore, an application for us is we have to constantly practice the same process of changing and contextualizing the gospel for our people. We have to keep asking, what does it mean to present the gospel in ways to the people that they will understand? That means analyzing socioeconomic, cultural, racial, um, even, um, you know, there's just so many different ways that we conceive of ourselves that we need to understand to ask ourselves, how can we put the gospel uh, in our churches, in the relationships we're in to our people? Thirdly, while culture is changing, I think there's still a lot of parallels that we can make to our history. Tim Keller was able to pull from a, a particular historical context and use it in his. Edward's ability to put the gospel to people who saw themselves individualistically parallels with our people today who still see themselves individualistically. This is why it's probably premature to start calling our, I think a couple of years ago, um, maybe it was 10 years ago, people said, well, we're postmodern. That's probably not very accurate because we're still in modernity because people still see themselves with science and logic and individuality that come from that, that uh, age. The foundation might be gone, but the values are still with us. This is why it's proper to ask, like we are today, what lessons can we learn about how Tim Keller presented the gospel from the 1980s to 2020s? And I think many of those lessons we can still use. That's one of the, the beauties as much as even though he's no longer with us, um, I think a lot of his insights we can still use. That I think we can still use, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believed, and yet I'm more loved and cared for than I ever dared hope. Being mindful that we need to translate what sin and what acceptance and love is. We can still use, and we should use, that the heart of unbelief is actually in both the Christian and the unchristian. Um, both the Christian and the non-Christian. That, that, that phrasing it that way keeps the divide away, keeps the us versus them mentality away and helps both grow the Christian into their love for Jesus. And it shows the non-Christian that what they're being called to is not just a simple moral law, but a relationship with Jesus Christ. We should and can still show people that intellectual knowledge is not the same thing as experiential knowledge. That it, unless it gets into the heart, unless it gets into how we live out our life and it infuses our imagination and our, our words and our thoughts and our dreams, that it's not real knowledge. The gospel isn't just fact. It must therefore move us to change or it's not the gospel. And we have to ask, are we regularly doing that? Are we doing the needed assessments in our historical context where there's continuity and discontinuity from how we've done things in the past. Fourthly, some of the critiques of Tim Keller 
recently, at least in America, hint at how uh, his gospel presentation might have worked back in the 1980s. But today, there's more of an openly hostile space and they don't work anymore. I think that misunderstands the New York cultural context of the 80s and 90s and the open hostility that we met there. But it's also a warning for us to be careful that we don't over or underread our historical spaces or cultural contexts. Um, I, I am not unaware that even in this talk, I only spoke about Tim Keller's pietistic gospel presentation. But there are many who will and should emphasize the gospel not just as a personal work of Jesus' life and death, but also the kingdom impact of, our, of how it affects our relationships to power and justice and peace. I do not believe that there should be competing positions, but rather a combined presentation, even if there is only one gospel. Tim Keller himself liked to say, if you push down deep enough in any particular gospel presentation, you should find the other ones there. We must be careful not to sneer at the gospel presentations that may not move in your historical context. Maybe it might not, might, it might not move your heart, but it will in other spaces. And then we can learn what we might be missing from those in t- for how our people and what they need. Let us not be in reaction, therefore, uh, against one view while realizing that we can learn from the different presentations. Last point, lastly, we need to continue to translate the power of the gospel for both Christians and non-Christians alike, uh, like what Tim Keller popularized. Christians might theoretically believe Jesus accepted me and therefore I live a good life. But in my experience, regularly, most Christians believe I live a good life and therefore Jesus accepts me. No wonder many of our churches and communities are filled with Christians who are anxious and insecure and overly critical of others and, and hurt because they haven't really experienced God's love and presence deeply in them. It's because the gospel isn't really being lived. It hasn't settled in their hearts. It's only when Christians rediscover this good news and they realize what they thought they understood, they, they didn't, but now anew they do, that's when the anxiety and the fear and the anger and the fragility falls away. And you get this new center of contentment and gratitude and peace. And, and I would argue it becomes attractive to non-Christians. Only when non-Christians at the same time realize that they aren't being called to another performance model of a bay and then you're accepted, but rather a new way of seeing all of life through the unconditional acceptance that leads to radical change will our cultures really change. I miss my father, but holding on to these insights from him, gleaned from Jonathan Edwards, not just the head, but the heart, not accepted and then you, not, not obey and then I'm accepted, but accepted and therefore I obey. These phrases, which are translations of Edwards for our people can help us meet our people and help us understand the radical good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this good word. Thank you for uh, the work of men and women who've come before us, who have taken your good news, your infinite, perfect, uh, and real good news, and applied it in the forms and ways that can change us. 
I pray for renewed hearts, even in this room uh, today, that we will re-remember our first love, you, what you've done, what you're doing, what you will do. And I pray that you would move that into our hearts in a profound way so that we can then turn around to others in our midst and um, reveal you to them. I pray that we would um, see some of these great insights from the, the history past and that we can apply them powerfully in our context today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.